A lot of drama, a lot of backbiting and backstabbing, a lot of arguments, people swapping sides, deciding to change their mind on matters, doing the right thing, doing the deliberately wrong thing, and ending up in a chaotic mess. This might sound like our own government sometimes, and this might sound like the way we think we're governed, but I would say that the political drama we see acted out over this chapter and a half is our worst nightmare for what a kingdom might look like. Um, and to give us a bit of a help to guide us through this political drama, I want to flag up some of the main characters we see in this chapter. We see, of course, King David. I'm sure most of us know King David from the story of David and Goliath, but David is in the south of Israel at this time, and he's got a small section, and he's got a, he is based in Hebron, and he has got one tribe following him. And then in the north, we have another king. We have the king Ishbosheth, who is the descendant of Saul, who is trying to claim that he's the real king and he's the legitimate king, and the majority of Israel is behind him. These are the two kings we see at war in this passage, and each one of them has their own general, their own commander-in-chief. And as we know, in a, whenever a king would be established, having, being the king's great, but you also need a man with a muscle to put everybody in their place. And for David, that's Joab. That's Joab who we'll hear about all the way through this book. Joab, who we see fighting for David and who we see eventually going out and being the, the real general that heads up David's kingdom expansion throughout this whole book. And on the other side of that, we have another general, Abner. And these four men make up the key figures throughout this chapter. They are the key players, our main characters, the ones who are involved with all the drama. And the drama plays itself out over a series of about four scenes. Whenever we first start into this section, we start out with scene one, a battle. And what's happened is Abner, the general of Ishbosheth's kingdom, has crossed over the River Jordan and he is beginning to try and get closer and closer to David's base in Hebron. And Joab, David's general, goes out to meet him. And they meet in the middle in a place called Gibeah around a watering point. And as the troops are sitting there being refreshed, Abner makes a comment that should these men not go up before us and fight. And with that comment, a bloody battle ensues in which 19 of David's men die and 360 of Ithbosheth's men die. No ground is gained. No political ends are advanced. Nobody's closer to the crown at the end of it. There's just 379 men dead. It's a bloody battle after a stupid comment, and it just ends in more death and bloodshed. The second scene we see, and we read a little bit of it, is that there's an argument that takes place in this section. And the argument takes place between Abner, that general of Ishbosheth's forces, and the king Ishbosheth himself, where Ishbosheth accuses Abner of having taken one of Saul's, his father's, concubines. And if you look in the ancient world, that could have been seen as a power grab. We'll see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 16 how taking somebody's uh, concubine or somebody belongs to them can be seen as trying to take the authority and the power that they had. 
And even though Abner was a cousin of Ishbosheth, and even though they were both at the house of Saul, and you would have thought that they want to both be on the same side, trying to establish Ishbosheth as king over all of Israel, we see Abner takes the huff. Abner gets his back up really, really quickly, where immediately he spins it around and says, well, if you're not gonna let me do what I want, if you're not gonna let me have who I want, if you're not gonna let me be the head honcho around here, I'm gonna go off to David and I'm gonna serve him. And we see that Abner betrays Ishbosheth after this big argument. But we see something even more profound if you look down at verse nine, because we see the real nature of Abner's heart in this. Because part of us might be tempted to think that Abner is now going to go and serve David and do God's will. But we see that Abner knew the whole time the kingdom had been promised to David. And he was actively and willfully disobeying God. When we look down in verse nine, he says, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath. Abner and Ishbosheth knew that there had been a promise to David that he would be king. But they just didn't care. They were indifferent because who really wants to be faithful to God whenever there's so much power to be had? They were greedy, and so they were trying to get whatever they could. And now Abner, unable to hold the power that he wants, unable to get whatever he wants in Ishbosheth's kingdom, he huffs and he goes off to David and he makes a deal. Abner reaches out to David. He sends some messengers and he says, I will come alongside you. And look down at verse 12. He says that whose land is this? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all of Israel over you. Or in some translations it says, behold, my hand shall be with you to bring Israel to you. Abner goes to David and says, do you wanna be king? Do you wanna be Lord of all this? I'm the guy who can make that happen. Listen to me, get me on your side, and I can make you the king over all of Israel. Abner thinks that he's the real kingmaker in this passage. And if we see down in verse 17, whenever Abner goes and talks to the elders of the tribes of Israel, that Abner was the one who was even holding those tribesmen back from making David king. Abner had been going on behind the scenes, making backroom deals, trying to cement the power of Ishbosheth. And now it didn't suit him so much, he wanted to change his political prowess and use it for David's advancement. And of course, if at the end of it, David wanted to repay Abner in some way and do something good for him, he was quite happy to have that happen. But if he scratched David's back, David scratches his back. And David responds saying that he'll happily make the deal on one condition, that he'll bring David's wife, uh, Michal, back to him. And Michal, Michal's went off and been married off again. And we see that she's been married off to a man called Paltiel. And we might think that this is David lamenting the fact that his wife's been taken away from him and wanting to claim her back. But if you look at the section that we read at the start of this passage, 
Starting in verse two, if you count down the number of wives that David has at this point, David has six wives and he has six sons from six wives. This isn't David sitting lonely in his big, uh, his big kingdom thinking, I wish I had somebody to share it with. This is David looking and seeing something that was once his, looking at Michal as a bit of property and wanting it back because it's embarrassing to have a wife that once belonged to you now married off in another man's kingdom. It's not love. It's not young romantic hearts. It's only power and greed where women are treated as objects in the midst of it. And we see that Abner quite happily goes and brings Michal from her husband, Paltiel, and returns Michal to David. And Paltiel, the, the, the now ex-husband of Michal, weeps following after her. And David no doubt would have seen this. David no doubt would have witnessed this. This man in tears as his wife is taken away from him. And as he goes back, we wonder what's went on in his heart as well. And finally, we see that after the deal's been made, Abner thinks he's sitting pretty. He's made the deal. He's returned Michal, David's original wife, back to him. You know, we might think that he's put everything right. Everybody seems happy. But Joab, the general of David's forces, the opposite number to Abner in David's kingdom, begins to be a bit concerned. Because this is the man who had killed his brother back in chapter two, who's now been brought back and has now been given a position of power and authority, now coming back with a sense of reputation and a sense of credibility. And Joab looks at him and he can't understand why David would ever have made a deal like this. He gets angry at David and begins to shout, do you not know that he came to deceive you? Because in his mind, that's all he thinks Abner would want to do is deceive David and lead him astray. And in a mixture of wanting to get revenge for his brother's death, being concerned that David's maybe been led astray by Abner, and also a fear that here's now another head honcho general in the kingdom and you're not the only one. Joab, despite the peace declared and despite the covenant and promises made, takes Abner out by the gate and stabs him in the stomach and lets him die. This is the kingdom that the Jewish people will look back on as being the greatest kingdom they ever had. This is the kingdom that's to be a reflection to the nations around them of the wonder and beauty and majesty of God. This is the kingdom that's meant to display what God's saving grace and love can do to people. And what a political mess it is. We have David, David, we might think, great, lovely, godly David. David, who has seven wives throughout this passage, who's clearly has a problem in his, his heart with women, and as we will see in coming weeks, definitely has a problem as he adds more wives and concubines to the mix. We have Joab, 
who will remain the general of David's forces throughout this great kingdom in the Bible. Joab, who's hot-headed and angry, who wants revenge and fears the threat that Abner might make. And then we have Abner himself. Abner, who's a schemer and a manipulator and a backroom politician who will move things for his own ends only when it suits him. These are not men you would pick for a kingdom. If we were maybe gonna pick a kingdom, we'd want a king who wasn't a womanizer like David. We want a king who was, had a sense of repu, repu, reputable, reputability to him, wouldn't we? We'd want a king who the tabloids could go through him and they wouldn't find anything. If we wanted a general in charge of all of our forces, we wouldn't want somebody who's hot-headed and vengeful. We'd want somebody who's calm, collect, somebody who can you know, sit down, take a minute, come to the right decision after a bit of reasoning, not somebody who gets angry and murders. If we wanted to make deals with people and an ally, we wouldn't make deals with people like Abner. We would make deals with somebody better, somebody with a better reputation, somebody who seems more considerate to those around him, somebody who's clearly not out for their own gain, somebody with a bit of compassion and a bit of love. If we were gonna make a kingdom, we would make it with better people, wouldn't we? Because we think that looking at this, God's chosen the wrong people in some ways. A womanizer, a hothead, and a schemer and a manipulator. And I think the reason we maybe could think that God's maybe made a mistake here or God's chosen the wrong people is that we think that the sins of David, Joab, and Abner are of a different type to the sort of sins we commit. We're not a womanizer like David. We would never be unfaithful to our spouse or spouses the way David was. But I wonder if they saw our internet history, would they say the same thing? I wonder if they knew about every second look and glance, would they say the same thing? I wonder if they knew what went on in our head would they say the same thing and think that we weren't as unfaithful as David was? We might not be as hot-headed or as angry and kill like Joab, but there are people who have hurt us who we will hold on to that hurt for a sense of validation, for a sense that we need to put this right ourselves. The people whose messages we're not replying to, the people who we ignore when we see them in the street even though we've known them for years. The people who we can't bear to look at. The people who we are withholding our forgiveness from. We might not be a manipulator and a schemer like Abner, but do your eyes light up whenever you hear a little bit of gossip that you can use for your own advancement? Do we revel and finding out ways that we can get ahead? Do we enjoy hearing that little bit of information that we shouldn't know? We might think we are terribly different from David and Joab and Abner, but really we are cut from the exact same cloth. And the sins that show up in our lives aren't of a different type we maybe just haven't followed them as far down the path as David, Joab, and Abner followed them. We are as much 
broken, sinful, messed up people as David, Joab, and Abner. The only thing that stops us from going as far with our sin as these men did is the restraining hand of God in our lives. We're not as different as we would like to think. And so we might think, what sort of kingdom is this? What sort of kingdom is God building? Where in the Old Testament, he uses broken men like David, Joab, and Abner, and now uses broken and sinful people like us. What sort of kingdom is this? Well, this is a very different sort of kingdom than any kingdom we would ever want to be part of. Whenever we start a kingdom, we might want to choose all the best people. We might want to choose the people we think are best qualified, the people we will do, think will do the best job, the people with the best character, the people we like, the people we love, the people who make us laugh. But not God. Not God. Because we have a God who uses people who are broken and sinful and incapable and unqualified. And he invites them in to take part in what he's doing by his grace so that the glory goes to him and not to the people. You know, David, who is the king after God's own heart, David was not picked to be king because he would be especially wonderful and godly. The other sons of Jesse were godly men as well. But God recognized that he was a king who would give glory to him. And this is the pattern we see throughout all the Old Testament and all of the Bible, that we might want to build a kingdom through establishing it by the work of our own hands. We want to be like Abner who'll say, I'll make you king God through the decisions and plans that we make. But David doesn't become the king over Israel by his own strength or character or talent because the kingdom of God isn't earned, it's received. Did you notice how this passage started in chapter three? Almost something we could have skipped over so easily and missed. Says that the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. We could skip over that and think that that is just a little throwaway verse to give us a bit of background detail. But can I ask you, what made David stronger in those years? What allowed him to have sons? What allowed him to have peace? What allowed him to build? And it was the grace of God in his life showing up in ordinary ways that allowed him to grow in strength and power. Joab couldn't establish David as king after a battle with Abner. It just ended in bloodshed. Abner couldn't establish David as king after his backroom deals. It ended up with him dead. And David now had a whole problem of trying to prove that David wasn't behind the assassination of Abner. The only thing that establishes David as king over God's kingdom is grace. Because the kingdom of God is received, not earned. That is what we see through the whole Bible, that God is glorified in giving us what we don't deserve to people who are broken and could never do it by themselves. 
We might think that to take part in God's kingdom or to do something for God that, you know, we need to be not just a Christian, but a really godly Christian. You know, those ones who pray every morning without failure, who never get angry, who never have an off day, who never snap at their wife and kids, who always face the world with that joyful, optimistic disposition that is always happy to pray for people and never has a dark moment. We might think that the only people who are able to do great things for God are the people who are greatly godly in and of themselves. Those better Christians. But can I let you in on a little secret? There's no such thing as those perfect better Christians. There is only ordinary, normal Christians like us who are sinful and who make mistakes and who need to be brought back to the grace of God time and time again. Because God delights in using people who are broken and sinful to accomplish great things for his glory. That's why Noah was a drunk. That's why Abraham was a liar. That's why Moses was a murderer. That's why David was a womanizer. That's why Jeremiah was a gurn. That's why Matthew was a tax collector. That's why Peter always uh, spoke or did things without thinking. That's why James and John had terrible tempers. And Samson, don't even get me started on what Samson was like. God uses normal, sinful people like us because in our brokenness, we are able to display the wonder and power of his grace and glory and forgiveness. The gospel we believe in is not that Jesus died so that good, nice people could go to heaven. The gospel we believe in is that God looks at people who are sinful and broken and who need saved because they are incapable of doing it themselves. And so God sends his one and only son, Jesus, so that we might have access and relationship with him through Jesus' death on the cross. What holds us back from that promise and that good news, what holds us back from going to Christ is not a humility that tells us that we have too little to offer, but it's a pride that thinks that we still have something left to give. It's only when we realize that God has shown us a grace that is undeserved in any way will we see the real power of the gospel. Because if you have been forgiven and brought into God's kingdom on no merit in and of yourself, all of your sins have been cleansed, not because of anything you have done or said. If you are entering into a life of eternal glory and bliss with God because of nothing you have done, but because of everything Jesus has done, do you see how that changes the very frameworks of kingdoms, of our lives, of our jobs, of our families, and of our hearts. Imagine how patient believing that God was patient with you despite your constant sinning would make you at work whenever somebody does something wrong. Considering, consider how God's unmerited love would end and shape every argument you have with your family. And imagine what really believing and taking hold of the idea that God delights to save sinners would mean for you and your heart and your guilt and your shame of how we can set it aside. Because the great thing we believe about God is that this is a different sort of kingdom. One where God takes broken people like David, Joab, and Abner 
and he uses them for his glory. And he does the same with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that even though we are broken and sinful, you use us for your infinite glory. Father, help us believe this truth, apply it to our hearts, and would we live with gospel transformation in the weeks to come. Help us believe this and make it real to us more and more each day. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.